uh, chapters 6 and 7, uh, have been the hardest for many in the book of Romans. In fact, I put in my email that Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when asked before he did his humongous, voluminous series on Romans, why he wouldn't preach it, he said, I can't preach it till I understand chapter 6. But what I love about it, again, it, it, if you follow his line of thought, is it just makes absolute sense. That he doesn't hide behind things, that's too difficult, let's not talk about it, but it brings it to light. So here's where we are so far in Romans. Chapter 1, 18 through 320. He outlines the need of every human being to be saved. That there is no one that is going to be uh, rescued by their own good works from the wrath of God. Everybody, ever born, needs to be saved. In chapter 3, 21 through 425, he, he unloads the beautiful truth of justification. Here's how. Here's how when you see the chasm of your sin and you see the glory of God, here's how a human being is saved. And then we spent a couple of months in chapter 5, uh, the amazing, wonderful results of justification. Here is what we have as the justified people of God. In, chapter, in, in verses 12 through 21, we talked about the entrance of sin into the world. And we spent two weeks really talking about the doctrine of federal headship and our union with Christ. What, what happens right now is the logical response. It is the logical response of someone who has grasped the gospel of Jesus Christ and is still sinful. Okay? It, 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 is, it is the logical response. And so he starts with a question, chapter 6. We're going to go just through uh, verse 4 this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, even if you don't, stand for the reading of God's word. Romans 6, 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Um, I, I want to warn you that the slides are probably going to be wrong, and I know your bulletin's wrong. And so here's what happens. I print my bulletin, I go on a bike ride, and I start thinking about my whole sermon. And they've all printed, and it takes about four hours to print all the bulletins out of my little printer. Uh, and so I get back, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that's too bad. So uh, don't worry about the slides. Don't worry about the outline. Um, but here's just a little funny aside. You, you all see me on my bicycle, right? You honk and wave and stuff. And um, I, I get these thoughts, and I'm, and I'm riding up a hill or down a hill, and I'm gasping for breath and life. And I'm like, hey, Siri, take a note. Uh, I think I'm going to save all of them because uh, it's just hilarious. I get home, and I'm like, what on earth did I mean by that? You know. So uh, in one of my notes for this sermon, I was talking about the Rogan Christ. I have no idea who that is. But um, anyway, uh, there's so much here, and it's so important that we get it. Okay, So much here, it's so important that we get it. Um, but as I start, I have two fears concerning two motives. When Scotty was teaching today, he, he stood up and, and, and said to us, you know, it's a stressful thing to teach. 
And it really is. It is a stressful thing to teach because of what's being taught and because of how important it is. Right? Because of what's being taught. I'm not teaching you uh, basic finance or the Pythagorean theorem. Right? I, I, am, I am teaching something from God's word that concerns our souls, our life. Uh, and so I have two fears when I teach. The first is of God. Right? I, I mean, it's, it's nervous enough to stand in front of a bunch of people that you know and that you love and that you care for. It gets easier, right? But that's not my greatest fear, that one of you will fall asleep, right? Or that there's some visitor here that will mock me. No, the greatest fear when you get into the pulpit is of God. I am his servant. Ministers wore robes to signify that. Not because they were greater, but, but as a judge wears a robe in a courtroom to say, uh, I have the authority placed upon me. Um, pastor would wear a robe, in a, in a sense, um, to signify that. And um, I don't care if you're a Christian or not a Christian, what you believe concerning God is the most important thing in your life. What you believe concerning God who he is, how he acts, how he interacts, how he will deal with you, why is what's going on in the world, how you think about God is most important. And so, uh, you know, when I was preaching out of Romans 4, a while back, but Romans 4, uh, verses 4 and 5, when I said, now, this is, this is out of the text, Romans 4, 4 and 5, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who doesn't work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. An amazing blessing. And I said something like this. That means we stop working. We rest in his righteousness. And as I said it, I was afraid. Like, oh, what will happen if these people rest solely in the righteousness of Jesus? Will they be on time for church? Will they quit giving? You know why? Because there's really... Well, there's, let me get back to my point. There's, there's two fears. The first one is of God. Uh, the, the harshest treatment in all of Scripture is to false prophets. They, their families, their nations, the country, they get just swallowed up. Those who take the people of God and lead them astray, get the harshest punishments. The evil shepherds, right? They get the harshest punishments. So for sure, when we talk about theology, I am mostly concerned about God. I don't start the sermon, what do these people need to hear? What would they like to hear? What, 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 how can I present God to them in a way that makes them happy? No. How will I answer to God when he says, I brought these souls in here and they sat before you and you opened my word to them. Did you teach them the truth from my word? Right? And that's why I always stay with the scriptures. But the second really is a fear for you. If we remove, if we remove the fear of you losing your salvation, 
If we remove the fear of you being put in the balance and found wanting, what motive is there then for you to get up on a Saturday when you'd really rather just kind of sleep in? What motive is there for you to forgive a coworker, forgive a spouse, a child, if you're not afraid? See, there's two fears about the two motives. And I venture to say that most humans are motivated by one of two things. It can kind of almost boil it down. One is fear, right? I, I do things out of fear. I pay my bills not because I love USAA, not because I love Northeast Oklahoma Electric Corporation. I pay my bills because I am afraid. If I don't pay my bills, my electricity will get cut off. My credit score will plummet. Oh no, right? Fear. So much of our motivation for anything. I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid of being laughed at. I'm afraid of being mocked. I'm afraid of not having enough money. I'm afraid people won't respect me. Right? The gospel takes that away from Christians. It's gone. And I'm afraid at times to give the gospel to Christians. Because I think, what will make them do right? Parent raises child. Parent spanks child. Parent wants child to eventually not need spankings anymore. Parent spanks child hoping that it will work. And I think it always works unless your kid loves it. <laughs> if your kid loves it, then withhold spanking as a punishment. Right? But, but the ultimate goal always is that it will be love that motivates them. It'll be a love for you It'll be a love for their God that motivates them. That's why this is in chapter 6. Because what he has shown us in those first five chapters is the overwhelming love of God. And now he comes to this. Now we're going to deal with ongoing sin in the life of a Christian. We're going to deal with it because now you have the appropriate tool. Not fear of punishment. Not fear of being abandoned but an overwhelming love. And not a fear of losing that love, but an overwhelming love of God. So when I titled it Dangerous Grace, I, I, I think grace can be dangerous. I think the grace of God, given without a proper understanding of our sinfulness, of uh, the ongoing struggles that we will have. Uh, a grace that just says, now you've said the magic words and you've prayed the prayer, just go do what you want. Without understanding doing what you want or what God requires or what he loves is dangerous. So the two motives, fear, shame, regret, uh, and love. And the fact that God's love for us is not tied to our piety seems dangerous. Romans 5, 1 and 2. We've been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Through Him we've obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
You know why I think it's dangerous? At times I feel like I am tempted to raise spoiled children. <laughs> Do whatever you want. Get away with whatever you want, because God is good. Right? And, and so I, I hope you're kind of grasping that tension. Right? And, and churches have dealt with that tension in, in so many different ways. Right? They've dealt with that tension. Uh, they've dealt with it with legalism. Right? They've, they've dealt with it by making your salvation kind of, you may be saved today, but not tomorrow. Right? So they have, they have dealt with it, and they've tried to motivate their people towards holy living by chipping away at the beauty of the gospel. What's wonderful here is the apostle does absolutely none of that. So the sermon and sentence this morning is that the gospel of grace, when properly applied, is the greatest motivator and tool for our sanctification. All right? And so we understand being saved, being converted. Uh, Christian, you have to understand it is an all or nothing. It is not just a change of status. That's why Jesus uses words like being born again. Right? Like starting over. It is a whole new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from Christ. Now let me put it this way. Um, you hear from me all the time, probably every week, when we come to the Lord's table, I talk about the robe of Christ's righteousness. Right? And I take my big arms and I put them out. And I talk about just Him coming around and, and, and putting that robe over you and, and covering everything. Right? Now I want you to think about it this way. What if you're a dead, stinking possum and the robe comes all around it? Something's still stinky inside there, isn't it? And, and I think when I, when I, sometimes when I talk about it like that, it's almost like I'm saying who you are, it doesn't really matter anymore because all the stuff on the outside is covering what's on the inside. So I want you to think about it this way. Think of the robe of Christ's righteousness more like a bandage. Right? More like a bandage. It is a, it is a covering from the reality of who we are while Christ and the Holy Spirit work the inside and gives us a new heart. It is a covering of protection from the judgment and the wrath of God. It is a promise of what we will be. And it's why he always says, declared righteous, not actually righteous. When we talk in here about baptism, you know, these, these verses and the understanding of these concepts are so crucial. There, there have been nations that have fought bloody wars over the understanding of this. Right? The, the difference between the Roman Catholics and the Protestants and the martyrs and the burning and the wars... They deal with this. Martin Luther, the reason they wanted to kill him is because of this. Right? The, the council said, Luther, 500 years ago, your teaching of the justification by grace alone, through Christ alone, and faith alone, is leading the people into antinomianism, into uh, getting rid of the whole law, saying the law doesn't matter, it has no place, it doesn't count. And they go further on to say, and the reason you're doing it, Luther, is because you want to have sex and get married. <laughs> you want to give in to the baser instincts, and so you have changed your theology 
because you want your life to look this way. So it's really important. If I get passionate about it, I'm just telling you, we, we tend to just, I don't know, I hear these things, well, at least you're going to church, so that's good. I'm like, it may not be good. You know, and I wouldn't say that as much. It may not be good. It's good if they're going to a good church. But why do we all of a sudden think in, in modern USA that every church is great? When all throughout Scripture, you got truth and you got false prophets. You got people being led astray in their very own churches, right? So it's important that we grasp it. How are we going to dwell? How are we going to deal with indwelling sin? What's going to be the way we get rid of it? How are we going to act when all of a sudden we just we we get surprised and shocked that we we did things or thought things or fell back into an old pattern? Are we going to we going to say, "Hey, Rev, can you rebaptize me again?" That last one just didn't seem to take. I have had parents ask that before. Can you rebaptize my kid? And I want him dumped for seven minutes. <laughs> I mean, how, how, will we, how will we deal with that? Will we lower the law? Oh, that, that, that was back then, this is now. No, we won't. We will deal with that with the power of the gospel. We will deal with that with the beautiful, powerful gospel. Before Christ enters our lives, our lives are marked, I would say, by three things. Our lives are marked by our pursuits. What am I pursuing? What am I working towards? What am I going after? We think about that. We're human beings. We think about that. Our pets don't normally think about that. they're, They're working towards their next meal or their belly rub, whatever it is. But human beings, what are our pursuits? Before you're a Christian, your pursuits um, are defaulted to pleasure and self. The scriptures say we are like orphans. We are like orphans. Uh, When we are apart from God, we act like orphans. And and it uses that term orphan, not, not like orphans are bad, but what does an orphan have to do? An orphan has to rely on themselves. They can't count on anybody to bail them out. They've got, to, they've got to protect themselves, right? And, and, and so before our lives are turned to Christ, our pursuits usually revolve around pleasure and self. Uh, I think of these three things, pursuits, serving, and sowing. Uh, pursuits, pleasure, self, like an orphan, serving. Before Christ, we serve idols, idols of security. If I only get this, if I only make that, if I only receive this, if I only get so-and-so to love me, um, we, we serve idols. It makes absolute sense. It's what the rest of the world does. Throw your life after this, and you'll be someone. You'll make, someone, you'll make something of yourself. Um, and so because of our pursuits, we serve idols. Idols of security, standing, pleasure, comfort, significance. Um, and the third thing is... <laughs> I call it sowing just because of the reference to the Garden of Eden. We, we sow new fig leaves to cover our nakedness. And those idols offer that to us. Here's how you can present yourself. Uh, you're successful, right? You're beautiful. You're, uh, you know, w- whatever that is. Um, so before you come to Christ... So every human being that you deal with and yourself, 
even if you knew Christ as a child, you were, you were kind of pushed into this mindset of this is how what human beings do. We have pursuits. Mm-hmm. We want to win. We, we, we serve these idols that are supposed to help us, and then we sow fig leaves over ourselves. And after, after we come to know the Lord, those things change, and they must change. We have new life, that he'll say in verse 4. All right, so chapter 6 and 7 are this parentheses that assure us salvation and tell us how to deal with sin. Um, so we talked about why do we obey, right? We, we obey uh, fear and love. Um, and so for the Christian, it, it has to be the love of God. Now, when I say removing fear, uh, there is a healthy fear and I don't want to remove all of that. There's a healthy fear of the discipline of God. Right? God is not mocked, and he is a loving father. In fact, in Hebrews, he says, if you're not disciplined by God, then you're an illegitimate child. So there is a healthy dose of fear, but it is a different fear of God for a Christian. Right? The fear of God for a Christian is not, uh, I, I am lost, and he is going to turn his back on me. It is, no, I'm his child. Right? And of all the kids at Tupelo High School that I was most concerned about, it was my two boys. The whole football team could be doing one thing, saying one thing, and, and I would grab my boys by the shirt and take them in the back and say, I don't care what the rest of the team is doing. You're mine. And I will discipline you because I love you. So there, there is a healthy fear. I don't want to wipe that all away, and that should motivate us. It should. My, my, my father knows what I'm doing. He knows my every move, and um, he will not be mocked. He loves me too much to let me wander away into a life of sin without being corrected. Um, but our primary motivation for obedience and growth is the love of God. So then they ask this question, and I love it because this makes sense. After all that has been presented, they say, what shall we say then? Right? This is the first one. What shall we say? Apostles bringing himself in it. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? All right, so just bear with me. Here's the argument. Uh, as my sin is exposed, the grace of God is exposed. You know, he, he, he shows his glory and his love in forgiving all of these sins. If that's a way that God glorifies himself, well then... We should go on sinning because it promotes his glory. That, 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 that's it. It's also the motivation thing. We can go on sinning because we're under grace. Promoting of sin in order to promote the grace of God. And the apostle answers emphatically. Um, what does he say? By no means. By no means. Okay, that is a nice Hebrew uh, Christian Kirk Cameron PG movie answer. Uh, in the Greek, it is an emphatic expletive. No way, God forbid, are you crazy? Do you not know anything about our God? What idiot would think that God is going to be glorified by his children continuing to sin? You have... That, that, that's, you know what? It's a stupid question. 
So the teacher says, hey, there's no such thing as a stupid question. Like, yeah, there is, ma'am. Romans 6, verse 2 is a stupid question. Drop the mic, walk out the classroom to the principal's office. That's what he's saying. There's no way. No way. So we'll roll through this quickly. First thing he says is, there's been a death. Don't you realize that you died to sin? That it was sin that caused the death of the one holy, true Son of God? What on earth are you thinking to think that you increasing your sin is going to bless? Do you not know what happened? And so as we talked the last two weeks about the federal head that you're either under Christ or you're under Adam, now he's going to explode this view of being united to Christ. As Christ was put on the cross, so were you, he says. You died to that way of life. The possum is dead and it is stinking and God is putting a new heart in you and making you into a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. There has been a death. And I would say it is tragic that I think modern evangelicalism has really promoted that, that many Christians are more dead to Christ than alive to sin. Many Christians are just encouraged, you know, hey, it's all good, man. God's going to work it out at the end. We become universalists in so many ways. But he says, how can you live in it? You know, in the old days, if we use that term living in sin, you know, it meant shacking up, right? It meant a couple moved in together and uh, they weren't yet married and... Um, cohabitating now or, or however we use that phrase but the reason that phrase existed because it, it it was it was more of a willful disobedience right and, it, and it's interesting that christians would use that as if their sins didn't matter but there was something to it it was like i i am i have decided that i'm not going to give up this sinful behavior uh, i'm not fighting it anymore um, and, and so that's the mentality he has here. We cannot continue to live in sin. Now, here's the beautiful thing about God the Holy Spirit is he will convict you of that sin. When you belong to him, you will not rest. You know, I told many of you my, my, my um, testimony. I mean, the, the, the good, awesome kid, right? Knew all the Sunday school answers. Um, took a semester and said, I'm going to live in sin. And everybody else seemed to enjoy it, and I was the most miserable of souls um, because my father loves me. I am not saying we won't have seasons of sin, and, and six and seven are going to be really good news for us. It's going to give us freedom to wrestle with our sin, and it's giving us freedom in the bonds and the bounds of Christ's love but to live in sin is to have the pursuits of a person that's not saved it's it's to have the serving of idols of a person that is not saved it is to sow the fig leaves on ourselves of someone who is not saved and he's saying oh why would you even think about that why would you go back to something that was death 
Why would you go back to something that never gave you life, that just kept demanding and demanding and demanding, and as soon as you failed one little bit, you were jettisoned aside? That's what idols do. Oh, children, you died to that world. You're a new creation. I'm getting ahead of myself, but he says there's been a death. Okay, so this happens all through Scripture. Galatians 2, 19. Same writer, Paul, I, I died to the law that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. The Christian has now freedom. All right, so before you're a Christian, you have no freedom. You are a slave to sin. And life for many before they come to Christ is much easier. I'm going to be honest about all of that. It's much easier. You don't wrestle with motives. Your pursuits are all of your own. They're similar to everybody else around you. And you come to Christ, and there's a battle that starts waging between the old man and the new man. He says we were buried with him. And then in verse 4, he says, but there has been a rebirth. We were buried with him by baptism into death. And it uses those key words in order that for this reason, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. All right, so he mentions baptism, and he mentions baptism in what it represents. Uh, so for every Christian, there are two important dates on, on, the, on the calendar, per se. The one is the death and resurrection of Christ. All right, that is something that's happened in space and time and has immediate effect. And for the other is our conversion. Now, when I say there's two dates, some people worry that they can't remember their date and there wasn't a day and they grew up in the church and they never, right? I'm not saying you have to know if it was March 31st or 28th or whatever. But the date that you are converted is what he's talking about here. It is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not some separate thing that happens that gives you all kinds of spiritual powers, but it is the Holy Spirit that comes upon you that opens your heart and your mind to understand and to receive and to repent. And so he says, don't forget this, there was a rebirth. You were born again. As we said in our confession, you have died and your life now is hidden. The status has changed and the person has changed. And God gives us all nature uh, to help us understand things like this. Um, you know, the butterflies are starting to come out, right? We have a butterfly bush. I found the biggest, biggest uh, cocoon the other day. I was digging up a tree. There's a cocoon this big. I'm like, what on earth is coming out of that thing? A pterodactyl? You know, I mean, it was this big. I took a picture of it in my hand, showed it to Tammy. I'm like, what is this? But God gives us all of these things, right? There's a caterpillar. It doesn't look anything like a butterfly. Maybe a little bit of the body or whatever, but and sometimes they're different colors, right? The caterpillar dies, but the butterfly might emerge. The apostle is saying that to us here. Oh, children of God, 
his, his robe of righteousness is around you, but it is a robe of healing and nurturing and sanctifying and changing. And he is going to work beautiful things inside because you're covered with that. Now, I know of a young lady in our church who's had braces forever. Um, when you saw her mouth and her teeth, you would have definitely thought the tooth fairy was on crack. <laughs> These metal things have gone in there and pressure and pain, all to do something beautiful, a smile that you won't be ashamed of, relieving ongoing pain and issues right? It was painful. It had a purpose. Christians, when we hold on to the gospel of God's grace, th that's how he operates on us. He, he, he says, I, I love you. And immediately right now, today, I'm treating you as holy and perfect and righteous. But I've got so much more in store for you. And so when we go through our times of confession and assurance, that's the work of sanctification. Okay? That's the work of God the Spirit saying, today in this year, uh, I'm going to work on this area of you. I'm going I'm to take this poisonous pocket out. I'm going I'm to remove this idol that you use to define yourself. I'm going to remove it. And just as removing a tooth or changing a wire or adding a spring, it is painful. And we think, how can I live without this? Um, and, and our God say, oh, you're not going to just live without it. You're going to thrive without it. Now, I'll just tell you personally, for me, God has worked on my reputation for about 50 years. From the little boy who had an older brother that was always naughty and wanted to be the good kid. That has been an idol for me. It has been something I've sewn together to cover myself from the world. It has been what I have used to project success or goodness or whatever. And I know that God is working on it when it is attacked and it doesn't bother me like it used to. When the evil one attacks and it doesn't quite bother me like it used to, I'm able to stop and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your patient endurance. Thank you for uh, the security of who you are. Um, so I'm going to close this in prayer, but we'll, we'll have a couple months to work on this. I just encourage you to read chapter 6 and 7. Um, chapter 7 is a hard chapter, um, but it really should give you a sense, as all scripture really, that our God knows us and he's not afraid to take us through the hard things. Father, thank you for your word, and we thank you um, that we are new creations in Christ. And as we take this bread, as we drink this cup, uh, Father, maybe this week we eat the bread, be reminded that it is his body that is wrapped around us. And it is in that pure and wonderful security. Romans 8 says that there's nothing in all creation that can take that away from us that now the blood of Christ, it changes our hearts, our pursuits, our desires, our loves. May we even now, Father, see the reason to live a holy life is first and foremost to glorify you, 
but in doing so that you bring your children great delight. It is why the martyrs made the church grow. It's why, Lord, and we know this, that the people saw Christians suffer and they thought there's got to be something else going on that they would endure this. How can I get that? Pray now you set these elements aside, Father, for holy use. And we would leave with absolute assurance that we belong to you and absolute assurance that you, Holy Spirit, will work alongside us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we might live as children of light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.